Well, as you might have picked up, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, this morning, let me just pray as we come to uh, God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word, the Bible. Father, thank you that as we come to it, we can meet with you, our amazing God, meekness and majesty. Father, pray that as we read through, as we understand better what you have written down for us, help us to bow down and worship and recognise that this is our God. Amen. Sometimes it's hard to see the wood for the trees, isn't it? It's true in life, often we can be so busy in life that we almost forget to live in life, can't we? The day-to-day pressures, they stop us from taking a step back, don't they? And thinking about the bigger picture. Life sort of gets in the way. Well, here, John, in the book of Revelation, is trying to give us a big picture. He's trying to invite us to take a step back and see what is really going on in the world. The bigger picture in our world and the bigger picture in our lives too. John is being given heavenly truths that would help the churches that he's writing to go on in their mission for the Lord Jesus. But this is no sort of motivational prep talk, you know, just chin up guys, it'll all be okay, soldier on. God is giving John big insights into big things, because living for Jesus is a big thing. Actually, it takes a lot to get our heads round, doesn't it? It's something huge. And as we were seeing last time, it's a complete reorientation of our lives. God on the throne, not me. God at the centre of everything, not me. And our lives revolve around him and not the other way around. In fact, everything revolves around him. This is what we saw last time. This picture of uh, our world, in a way, a heavenly picture, with everything around the throne, including ourselves. And that was the fundamental truth that was laid down in chapter 4. God, even just as creator, is centre and is worthy of everything in our lives. Everything our lives have to offer, everything the universe has to offer. But God is not just creator, is he? He's not just a watchmaker who winds up the world and then leaves. God is active in our world. He has a plan for our world. But in Revelation there's a hitch. As we see in our first point, no one is worthy to accomplish God's plan. No one is worthy to accomplish God's plan. Let me just read to you verse 1 again. Then I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What we see here is a picture of reality. We've had the the, the background of chapter 4, we're looking into the heavenly realities of our world. And now chapter 5 begins the action. So I'm just going to move the slide further away. It's a bit of an echo. Chapter 5 begins the action. The one on the throne, the Lord God Almighty, has something in his hand. We didn't see this in chapter 4. This is some new information. What he has in his hand is an executive decree of the king. A scroll. That's what kings do. They have scrolls that give their orders. And it was a scroll that was written on front and back. And it had seven seals sealing the orders shut. Now if you've been following the series in Revelation so far, when it says that it's sealed with seven seals, if you remember seven is to do with completeness. It's to do with something that is absolutely something, perfectly something. 
So this document is completely sealed, perfectly sealed. Which is a problem, isn't it? Because actually this document contains God's plan. God's prophesied plans and purposes for the world. So he said that he's an active God. Well, it's a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 2. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel is handed a scroll, written on front and back, same words as here. And it's told that the words are of lamentation and mourning and woe. There, Ezekiel has to eat the scroll and then proclaim it to the nations and to Israel. But here, the scroll is sealed. The prophets were often told to seal up their prophecies that refer to God's purposes for the future. So Daniel, for example, is told in Daniel Daniel 8, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And Daniel 12, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Isaiah is told to seal up his visions in Isaiah 8 and wait for the Lord to act. So the prophecies have been made, the judgments and blessings have been foretold, but these ones are sealed. You can't open the scroll. And there's a problem. No one can be found worthy to open it. Verses 2 to 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. What it's saying there is that there's no one worthy to bring these things about. A search is sort of the whole of creation, the whole of history, and no one is found. I wish it imagined it a bit like Adam looking for a suitable helper. You know that bit of Genesis where he gets all the animals come before him and he's like, you know, this one? No. Monkey? No. Horse? No. Not this one. Or a bit like Prince Charming with Cinderella and the glass slipper, you know? This one? No. Next one? No. No one can be found in all of creation worthy to open this scroll. In other words, no one can be found in all creation worthy to bring about God's purposes in the world. And that's understandable in a way, isn't it? After all, part of this is judgment of the world. That's part of the things that he's seeing. Who is worthy to judge the world? Who is worthy to be judged on judgment day? Who is worthy to declare judgment when all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? It's a bit like when Jesus meets the woman caught in adultery. You want to judge her? Okay. Anyone without sin, you cast the first stone. That's the bar for judgment here. That's the bar for fulfilling God's purposes of judgment and salvation for the world. And who can possibly meet that standard? So John, as he sees the vision, begins to weep. There's no one. No one in all of creation is good enough, who is worthy enough, who is pure enough to do this. But then one of the elders speaks. There is one. That's our second point. There is one. Have a look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Eventually, one is found who can open the scroll. 
One who has conquered. One who has finally vanquished sin. One who is truly worthy to open the scroll. Who is it? Well, you know, John, he can't just give you a simple answer, can he? He can't just say, oh yeah, well, we all know what's coming, don't we? So here it is, here's John's answer. It's a lion. A lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's referring back to a prophecy from Jacob in Genesis on his deathbed. This is what he said in Genesis 49. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, the kingly scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who would reign over all the peoples. And here he is, the lion is here. Isaiah calls him the root of Jesse, King David's dad. The one who would come from David's line. Here he's called the root of David. The lion of Judah. And so John looks around. And in verse 6 he sees. A lamb. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders. I saw a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns. And with seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into all the earth. He sees a lamb. He sees a sheep. The great lion of the tribe of Judah is a lamb. And not even a particularly impressive lamb. One that has been slain. A sacrificial lamb. One that's been killed. And this is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. This is the one who is worthy to fulfill God's purposes and plans. A lamb-like lion. A lion-like lamb. But what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. That's what we were just singing before, isn't it? But there are clues that this is no ordinary sheep. We said in some ways this doesn't look impressive, but in other ways it does. It has seven horns on its head. Now if I tell you that horns in the Bible symbolise power then we can see that seven horns would mean complete power. All power, perfect power. This is almighty, God almighty here. The lamb has seven eyes. All seeing. Why? Because those seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit, as we saw through chapters one to four. This lamb is spirit-filled and sees everything. And do you see in verse 8 that it's worshipped by the elders? And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We said in chapter 4 that the elders symbolise God's people. God's people bow down and worship the Lamb with a harp, like the musicians in the temple, with bowls of incense, which were told are the prayers of the saints. So this lamb is none other. Sorry, here the eyes. This <coughs> lamb is none other than the Lord Jesus. 
Now this seems like a bit of a strange picture, doesn't it, for the Lord Jesus? And some of you might be thinking, hang on, haven't we already seen the Lord Jesus in Revelation? Isn't he there in chapter 1 with the voice like a trumpet, with feet like burnished bronze? Isn't he the one that's got the golden sash on, walking around the lampstands? And yes, we have. But this should give us a clue as to how the book of Revelation works. This is the same person we're talking about, the Lord Jesus, but seen from a different angle. Same object, different perspective. I mean, think about it, we've already had the Holy Spirit appear as seven spirits, seven flaming torches, and here are seven eyes on the lamp. This is how the book works. It's not saying that the Spirit is a torch. It's not saying that Jesus is a lamb. The language is symbolic to vividly show us different aspects of what's going on, who's there, and what's happening. So Christ is that glorious risen Son of Man of chapter 1. But he's also the Lamb that was slain of chapter 5. Same person, different angles. And as we said before, it's New Testament truth and Old Testament language. Say Old Testament language, and it is. Jesus here is pictured as the Passover Lamb. That's really what we're, we're seeing here, the Lamb that was slain. The one that was slain in place of the firstborn in Exodus. The lamb who shed his blood to rescue his people. But this is also a New Testament image, isn't it? One of John's favourites. He's the one who tells us that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Actually, we see this in the New Testament as well. Jesus is the Lamb. And he's pictured here, notice, among the elders. That's uh, back in verse 6. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Interestingly, confusingly, perhaps some translations like the NIV, if any of you guys have got that one, have, instead of that, they have at the centre of the throne. So it's either among the elders, or at the centre of the throne. In fact, about half the translations say that he's in the middle of the elders, and about half the translations say that he's in the middle of the throne. Half the commentaries take it one way, half the commentaries take it the other. And the reason I found out this week is that the original actually has both. So this is what it says, word for word, in verse 6. And I saw, and behold, in the middle of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the middle of the elders, a lamb. If you translated it literally, he would be stood both in the middle of the elders... And in the middle of the throne. But how can that be? How can he be in two places at once? Well, we're in the book of Revelation, aren't we? Where the spirit is the same as the torches and the eyes and the lion is a lamb. What would it mean for him to be stood in the middle of both? Well, this lamb is among the elders. He's one of God's people. He was a man. And also, he's at the centre of the throne. He's God Almighty. This lamb that was slain is both man and God. God and man, lion and lamb. He is a wonderfully and amazingly both. And that is essential for what this lamb came to do. Because he must be a man to be a perfect sacrifice. Like for like, flesh for flesh, bone for bone. 
And he must be God for the sacrifice to work. A man alone, how would that be enough for more than one other person, perhaps, if it was a substitute? But for a whole people, well, his blood would need to be more precious than just the blood of one man, wouldn't it? Here is the lamb, the God-man, who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the one who was slain in our place, who died on the cross as a ransom for many to rescue his people from sin. And it will be pictured in all sorts of other ways as we go through the book, but this one goes right through to the end, this picture of the lamb that was slain, even into the new creation. So Revelation 22 verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. What it's saying though is that into eternity we will praise him as the lamb that was slain. That's what we'll be doing. We'll be praying, praising Jesus for his death on the cross. And that's exactly what the elders do. That's exactly what everything does. And so our last point. The chorus of creation, the choir of angels and the Christian. What follows are three songs that explain what's going on. We're going to see lots of songs sort of dropped in there in Revelation. We sing quite a lot of them in our hymns, so they're probably going to be quite familiar as we go through. But they often explain the action and what's happening. There's the song of God's people, the song of the elders, the song of the angels, and the song of the whole of creation. And it's as though the song keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So firstly then, the song of God's people. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's a new song that they sing. So significant is the arrival of this lamb that they need a new songbook. That's what it's saying, really. You've heard uh, Elton John sing your song? Well, this is our song. This is what we are to sing. This is the tracks of our years. This is the soundtrack of our life as a Christian. And what's it all about? Jesus. As we said last week, worship is not so much about hymns, but about him. There are a few words here, uh, but you could sum them up really in one word, couldn't you? Worthy. (coughs) Worthy. Jesus is worthy. That is the soundtrack to the Christian's life. Jesus is worthy. Why is he worthy? Well, we're told because he was slain. Because of his death. Now, some people nowadays want to make Jesus all about his incarnation. You know, Jesus' birth. That's what's important. And it is important, yeah, but it's not the main thing. Others want to make it all about Jesus' resurrection or ascension. And yeah, they are important, but again, they're not the main thing. The pinnacle of Christ's work, the main thing, the reason that he is declared worthy is his death. And no, that's not as cute as a baby in a manger, It's not as outwardly impressive as the resurrection or the ascension, but it's the climax of Christ's work, the thing that he came to do. 
Because we're told in our passage, his death ransomed people for God. His death rescued people from hell. His precious blood was shed to purchase a people for God. And yes, his birth and resurrection are important, but his death here is the theme of our song. His glorious global rescue. People are rescued here from every tribe, language, people and nation. Every language group, every ethnicity, every country. His death rescues people from all those backgrounds. And it brings them together into one kingdom. His kingdom. One family. The church. They're told, we're told they're a kingdom of priests. Priests who will one day reign upon the earth. That's why the elders are sat on thrones wearing crowns. We got part of the elders' song in chapter 4, praising God as creator, but now we get the full picture as they praise God as redeemer, rescuer. So the elders' song is not about what they're going to do or how great they are. The elders' song is about Jesus and what he has done for them. That is their story. That is their soundtrack. That is their song. That's on repeat on their lips and their minds and their actions as they go through life. The world song is about how great we are. Except deep down we know that we're not, don't we? We're not worthy of all praise. But our song is how great Christ is. And how worthy he is of all our praise. And that fits with the shape of the universe, the shape of reality, with Christ at the centre of the throne. One of my favourite John Piper quotes is this. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. I'll say that again. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. So life isn't about getting our 15 minutes of fame. It's about making Christ famous. It's about getting glory for him, not for ourselves. Though one day, of course, we will share in that glory. That is our song. And the angels echo our song. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honour and glory and blessing. Thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of angels. What's their song? Christ is worthy. That's their song. Worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, glory, blessing. These are all things that belong to God, if you think about it. Now, I wouldn't want to be a non-Trinitarian at this point, not believing in the Trinity. Here are these things ascribed to Christ. These are all things ascribed to God by King David when he's finished the preparations for the temple in 1 Chronicles 29. And here they're given to Christ. And then all creation joins in. Verses 13 and 14. 
And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour, and glory and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the angels fell, uh, the elders fell down and worshipped. Every creature here. If that's not clear enough, every creature in the sky, on the land, in the land, and in the sea. And if that's not clear enough, it's every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them. It's almost like a waste of words, isn't it? You could just say every creature, that would have been clear enough, but he goes on and on. But he wants to make it really clear, he's hammering home the point, absolutely everything. Everything that has breath, everything in the world here, is praising God. They're ascribing blessing and honour and glory and might to the one on the throne and the Lamb. All of creation is worshipping Christ. Again, I wouldn't want to be someone here saying that Jesus isn't God. All of creation worships him. Why the shorter list, though? I don't know if that went into your mind. Why does creation sort of, you know, they're missing off a few bits that the angels do? It's not that creation brings less glory to God. It's a numbers thing again. The holy angels describe seven things to God, symbolising holiness, completeness. While creation, which is often symbolised by four, brings four things to God. Again, hammering the point home that this is the whole of creation. All four corners of the earth. Everywhere, everything. <coughs> you thought I was making it up about the numbers, didn't you? I know some of you. And now what happens? The four living creatures appear. But hang on. Aren't they the same thing as all of creation? Aren't they all those things that we've just said? You know, every creature under heaven and earth, etc. Well, yeah, they are. So what do they say? Amen. <laughs> they join in, don't they? That's their song too. They've nothing more to add. Because that's their song. And what happens when creation speaks of Christ's glory? Well, the same as in chapter 4. The elders, God's people, fall down in worship. When creation speaks of the glory of Christ, we join in with the chorus of creation. We join in with the angels. We join in praising Christ. And as we've seen with Revelation so far, this is nothing that the rest of the New Testament doesn't tell us. So Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what we're seeing here. God's people, together with the angels, gather. Church together as a present reality. When we gather together in the name of Christ to praise his name, we participate in a special way in that heavenly gathering. We join in with the angels, we join in with creation, praising Christ. But we do so at other times, at all times really. When we bow down and worship Christ with all the mundanities of everyday life. When we turn the common place into common praise of Christ. As we serve others. 
as we sacrificially lay down our lives in the course of Christ. As we live normal life in praise to God our Creator and Redeemer, showing the worthiness of Christ. And that should help us see the wood for the trees. That should help us see the big picture. What are our lives all about? Day to day, not just on a Sunday, but through the week. Our lives are about praise to the Lamb on the throne. But every tree in our life, everything that happens in our life is an opportunity to do that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10-31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How much more mundane can you get than what are you having for tea? Do you ever have that conversation on the phone? Why are you asking why I'm for tea? It's the most boring question. Nothing with chips. There you go. Yeah, actually, even that can be to the praise of God, to the glory of God, to the praise of Christ. Everything in our life should be an opportunity to praise Him as we show His worth, as we make decisions that show that Christ is worth more than anything in our lives. So as we step back, as John invites us to, and see the big picture, let's live our lives to the praise and worship of the Lamb that was slain, and join in with the chorus of creation, giving praise to Christ alone. And that's what we're going to do now as we sing our final hymn, Love Before the Dawn of Time, that speaks of joining in with the chorus of creation and living our lives to his honour. So let's stand and sing.